First um, Peter chapter four. So before we we dive in and read this, I, I want to mention something. I think it's really easy sometimes when we get into a book like First Peter, for instance, that talks a lot about suffering, a lot about persecution, and what the church was facing during this time, who it is Peter's writing to, why he's writing to them. And it's really easy to get to sections in the New, New Testament and almost think that that was then and this is now, and this doesn't necessarily relate to me, um, that we don't deal with the same issues that they dealt with in the first century church and that we're living in different times and we begin to make these excuses, but here's the deal. Anybody watch the news? At least a couple of you. Uh, man, people are very much being persecuted around the world today for their religious beliefs. Almost monthly, it seems like you're hearing about a church or even a Jewish synagogue that gets bombed or somebody comes in and shoots a bunch of, pe bunch of people up and it just happened yesterday in San Diego. Uh, this Jewish synagogue, somebody came in and opened fire in one. And I was reading these stats this week that there's 345 Christians killed for, for faith-related reasons every month. 105 churches and Christian buildings are burned or attacked each month around the world. 219 Christians are detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned on a monthly basis. This is going on around us right now. And we live in kind of a protected sphere that we don't see this a lot, but it's going on around us. And so the words of Peter as we get into uh, this book, they, they should ring loud and clear for us today because these are the times that we're living in. So Peter's message should hit home to us. We should feel the weight of this. We shouldn't read this and think to ourselves, um, that was for then, that doesn't happen these days because it's happening today. And I think that um, Peter's message and the, the, these books that we're reading are probably more relevant today than ever before. And in light of what we know and, and what we're experiencing, how do we live in these times? And that's really the gist of Peter's, all of Peter's writing is in light of what we know and what we're experiencing, how is it that we live as followers of Jesus in the midst of the world and the chaos that we're in. And so I wanna open us up in, uh, in prayer this morning and then we'll dive right in. So if you guys wanna grab the hand of the person to your right, to your left, unless they sketch you out, I always make that preface. You don't have to hold their hand, but we are brothers and sister, sisters in Jesus. So let's pray. Jesus, uh, we thank you this morning that we get to study your word. God, we thank you that we get to come together as your church in the area of the country that we live in. What an awesome place, Lord. But I pray, God, that we would not be naive enough to believe that what we're reading about, even in First Peter, isn't happening around the world today. Um, God, as we sit here this morning, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of followers of Jesus being martyred, uh, being persecuted for taking a stand for their faith. And I feel, I feel a little weird, God, that we get to stand here this morning in such a safe place and talk about your word. But I'm asking Jesus that you instill in each of us this desire to get on our faces and to seek you, to know that the times that we're living in, um, God, there are people around the world that we need to be interceding on behalf of. Um, Lord, and that we cannot live in a Christian bubble and just assume that 
things are fine and everything's okay and be ignorant to the fact that, um, Jesus, there's a lot going on and we desperately need you in the midst of it. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would arm us, that you would, uh, Jesus, you would prepare us, that you would um, bring rest and peace to our hearts in the midst of some of the devastation that even some of us in this room right now are feeling today. God, I pray for your grace to abound. I ask that your love and your kindness and your mercy be present, Lord, that it be sensed that we know that you are for us and not against us. And I ask that this morning, God, you take your word and lodge it so deeply into our hearts that we can't have but live in it, but we can't help but live in complete obedience to it. In your name we pray. Amen. Awesome. First Peter chapter four, verse one. Say a word when you guys get there. Sorry it's so heavy, you guys. I don't mean to like drop a bomb on you, but it's a pretty heavy, heavy section of scripture. First Peter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dis excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And then there's this hinge in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So what is it that Peter is saying here in a nutshell? Because Jesus suffered, you actually need to arm yourself and prepare for suffering yourself. What, what does he mean when he says arm yourself? And this, in the Greek, this is actually a military term. It actually is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 when he says to take up the full armor of God so that when evil comes, you can stand firm or you can stay put. This is the same terminology that Peter's using. This is a deliberate choice that you make to arm yourself with the same purpose of Jesus. This word purpose that he uses there means deliberation. It means to make the decision to be as deliberate and intentional as Christ in regards to what you do with your life. Everybody's on this mission in life to find their purpose, aren't they? How often do you talk to people uh, on a daily basis that are looking for their purpose? They're trying to find the one thing that they were called to do. 
And we actually weaken down this word purpose when we, when we boil it down to being titles and careers. We weaken this, the, this term, purpose. This isn't what he's talking about. He's not talking about, like, I'm supposed to be a lawyer or I'm supposed to go to school. He's talking about purpose. He's talking about del- deliberation. He's talking about living your life with intention. My purpose isn't pastor. Is that, do you guys understand that? Like, my, my purpose in life is not pastor. This isn't it. It's not the end-all, be-all of my life. My purpose is follower of Jesus. My purpose is to listen and be led by Christ. That's my purpose. It's not my title. So, so verse 1, when he says um, to arm yourself, this is the only like, imperative command that Peter gives in these first six verses. Arm yourselves. When you look back, it's interesting, on the Great Commission, right? We all know the Great Commission that Jesus gives in Matthew 28. And Jesus says what? He says, go therefore into all the world, and all, or all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. We all know this section of Scripture. It sounds pretty intentional to go therefore into all of the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But this is the choice that you make, to live your life with such intention that you go, therefore, into the world. It doesn't just happen. You go. You, you move when Jesus says go. And here's the reality, that, that, that this imperative st- statement that Jesus gives actually doesn't happen without suffering. It doesn't. Peter understood the weight of the call that Jesus had given us. He knew that all that... Jesus had said would actually happen, but it would happen with a, an amount of suffering, with hardship that, that happens, that it's not going to just be given to us. It's not just going to happen on its own, that you will make the choice. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this right before the Great Commission. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. That doesn't sound like super light and fluffy, right? This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. They will hate you. They will kill you. And then he tells them to go, therefore, in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so on one token, Jesus is saying, go into all the nations. And on the flip side, he's saying that you'll go through difficult times, that some of you will lose your lives, and that many of these nations you go into will hate you because of Jesus' name. Sounds really exciting, right? Anybody want to carry out the Great Commission now? And then a couple verses later in Matthew 24, Jesus follows it up and he says this, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. But there's this imperative nature of Christ's call in our life to go therefore in all the nations and that doesn't come without a cost and we as the church are the ones that he's sending to go preach the good news of Jesus to preach his kingdom come and his, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that won't come without paying a cost. Some will suffer for it. I read this, the, this brief excerpt from a Romanian pastor that spent 14 years in prison, and this is what he said. I've accepted this proposal. Christians are meant to have the same vocation as their king, that of cross bearers. Isn't that awesome? 
We're to have the same vocation as our king, that of cross-bearers. It is this conscience of a high calling and of partnership with Jesus which brings gladness and tribulations, which makes Christians enter prisons for their faith with the joy of a bridegroom entering into the bridal room. And Peter understood this, that we're in partnership with Jesus, not just in the power and the movement of his spirit here on this earth, but also we're partnering with Jesus in suffering. And so Peter's last comment here is sort of the kicker on this section before we move on. He says, because he who has suffered in the flesh, he says, has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So how does suffering in the flesh keep us from sin? He says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And the folks that Peter is writing to, as you guys will see in a bit, were struggling actually to not revert back to their old ways when things got hard. How many of you guys understand that? <laughs> Anybody ever been there? Things get difficult in your life and what do you start doing? Go back to what I know that can numb the pain and deal with the issues that I'm facing in life because I don't actually want to face them. So what are these people suffering for? They're suffering for righteousness, right? For doing the right thing. These aren't, they're not bringing this suffering on themselves. They're actually just proclaiming the name of Jesus. They're preaching the good news of Christ. And in doing so, they're facing, uh, they're facing trials and, and, and tribulations because of it. The, the world hates them because of the message that they stand for. And so this is what Peter's saying to them. Choose suffering because if you don't, you'll choose sin. You'll go back to that. If you choose to allow yourself to go through suffering, you'll prove that your bondage to sin has actually been broken. So we have to get the, the thought and the purpose in our heads that Christ is worth suffering for. That Jesus is worth it. Like no matter what we experience here on this earth, he's worth it. And he himself even went through it. We need to live out that conviction when the choice comes between suffering and sin. And in suffering, sin's actually defeated. And you are triumphant. Because you choose not to revert back to your old ways in the midst of difficult times. He goes on to say, verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you, to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. P Peter wants them and us to understand that you've had your past. You've been there, done that. When you gave in to everything that your flesh desired, anybody been there before? Like you had those days already, those are in the past, but you, or at least some of you in this room, you chose to follow Jesus, and in doing so, you chose to walk away from a past life. Jesus promised you new life. He cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. He, he set your feet upon a rock. He gave you a new trajectory in life. Why would you go back? And Peter's reminding them that, that no matter how hard it gets, guys, do not go back to what the Gentiles do. Do not go back to your old ways. That was then, but you've been saved from that. Don't continue to get wrapped up in the same stuff that used to own you. And, and then Peter lists six activities that he says were, were, that the Gentiles have carried out and walked in repeatedly. 
sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. What's the common thread with all of these things he lists? All these things do a really good job of numbing pain, don't they? All six of these things. You want to numb your pain and not feel what it is you're going through in life, go back to these things. It's a good way to get a temporary fix, and we're really good at that. And these are people who, again, they're not suffering because they're doing bad things. They're suffering because they're actually choosing to follow Jesus. And then in the midst of suffering and choosing to follow Jesus and facing persecution, they're choosing, some of them, to go back to their old ways, to not have to deal with the pain of what it is they're experiencing in life, to just go back to their old, to become like the world, like the Gentiles. And I don't think it's changed much in 2,000 years, has it? I mean, is this still happening today? <laughs> yeah. Verse four, he says, in all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I promise this message gets better as we go on. <laughs> But notice in verse four that he gives two results from the follower of Jesus' non-participation in the acts that he described in the previous verse. And it's this, these two things. He says, one, they think it's strange that you're doing what you're doing and that you're not running with them. Two, because they think it's weird that you're not doing what they do, they malign you for it. Isn't this crazy? Like, what are they maligning them for? Doing what's right. Taking a stand for Christ. A brief caveat. Um, I know that people that don't believe, unbelievers, can sometimes be really critical of our choice to live life with a different purpose and a different intention. I know that that happens, but unbelievers don't get it. But actually, what's been a trip for Heather and I over the years is that uh, with regards to some things, I think Christians are even more critical of other Christians. That's what sucks. Heather and I, years ago, at 21 years old, made a deliberate decision in our life to not drink alcohol. And... Uh, <clears throat> this had nothing to do with us thinking that alcohol is of the devil, although there's aspects of alcohol that I think are. <laughs> um, but it had nothing to do with some religious decision that Heather and I were making. Um, there were three reasons that we did this. One was um, we have a long lineage of family members on both sides of our family that were alcoholics, and we saw it destroy families and relationships, and we just decided that it's probably easier to just not drink it um, than to have to deal with the potential fallout of um, being owned by it. It's in our blood, so I just like would rather not. Uh, the second reason was we've spent a lot of our life in ministry dealing with people coming out of addiction. They, they've lived with us, they've served with us in ministry, they've been close friends of ours, and we just always wanted our home and our family to be a safe place. I never wanted to have to like give an excuse or 
um, have to hurry up and get the alcohol out of the fridge before they came over. It just seemed a lot easier for us to just not drink. I mean, I'll, I'll take a Diet Coke, you know what I mean? It's just not that big of a deal. Uh, but then the last one, which I think is the most important, is just the Holy Spirit convicted us and told us not to do it. And what's interesting over the years uh, with this, and I'm using this, this may be a weak example in my own life, but it's one area of our life that we've seen over and over again, the people that don't believe aren't the issue. Most of the time when they say, why don't you drink? And you go, man, I have a long lineage of alcoholics in my family. Um, we hang out with a lot of people who have had addiction problems in the past or are coming out of that. Like it just seemed easiest to just say no to it. They're like, awesome. The Christians are the ones always fighting to try to convince you of why you have the liberty and freedom in Jesus to drink and asking you why you don't. And it's been so interesting to us over the years because we're like, seriously? Just get it. Like the Holy Spirit convicted us. We said yes to what he was asking us to do. Like it shouldn't be an issue to you. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, Peter says this, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. At the end of the day, this isn't an issue of me having to work it out with you and flesh it out with you and convince you of why I make the decisions that I do. At the end of the day, you each will give an account of your own life to the Lord. So who am I to dictate what you say yes to and what you say no to? I'd rather push you to Jesus and and teach you what it means to listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life to make decisions that are a reflection of his leading in your life than for me to say, here's the list of five things that I wish you would do. Would you please do these things because you'll be holier and more righteous if you do so. I'm not interested in that. We have, we, we are to have the mind of Christ. We don't live that way because we've actually taken on another mind. Like Philippians 2.5 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Like, I want the mind of Jesus in my life. I don't care what any of you think. I want the mind of Christ. I don't want to be influenced by anybody else except for Christ. I've spent enough time in my life being okay with all of that other stuff. I, I remember those days, but when, when I devoted my life to Jesus, I began to actually live my life in accordance to what he wanted, not what I wanted. And, and Peter goes on to say, even though they malign you and will do and say all kinds of things about your choices to live your life intentionally, at the end of the day, you'll give an account, they'll give an account, be obedient to the Lord's leading in your life. Verse six, he says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This verse six here is kind of, a diff, is kind of difficult to understand. I, I think it's referring to people who heard the gospel and then died, but lived again in the spirit with Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, it's not like people who heard the gospel after they were dead, <laughs> but people who heard the gospel and then died, but live on again in the spirit of Christ in eternity. And the point of this verse is actually to encourage us that even though there's a judgment coming beyond the grave, and even though all of us die, 
Nevertheless, those who hear and believe the gospel will live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Verse 7, and here's kind of the hinge in this whole passage. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of what? Two of you saw that. For the purpose of prayer. Here's where this passage kind of takes a really neat turn. There's this reminder that the end is near, that the end is inevitable. So because there will be an end and this life you have is short, it's a blip, don't waste it on the things that destroy you. Spend this life well. Don't waste it on that junk. Spend it on the things that will last eternally. So live this life, he says, with sound judgment and a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So there's, there's this call to prayer. Like you need to be of sound judgment for prayer. This isn't just legalism or, or trying to get you to do the right things. It's because you can stand guard in prayer when nothing else has hindered you in your life. When there's no hindrances, you can pray for the right things. You know where to put your attention, what to pray for, what's going on around you. You know where to put your time and attention, how to pray. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit. I don't know if you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's crucified. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to do what? To pray. And he tells them to go pray, and what do his disciples do? They keep falling asleep, right? And he's like, oh my gosh, you guys are idiots. You know, like, I said pray, and you're sleeping. And so this happens a few times. And uh, in Matthew 26, Jesus says this. He says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Keep watching and praying that you won't enter into temptation. And he goes on to say this. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. One of the most impactful moments of all of my time in Jerusalem, or in Israel, was standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem, and taking that story in. Because what I realized was that as Jesus is telling his disciples to pray, what's going on in the city across the valley? Chaos. They're, they're going to be coming across the valley for Jesus in just a few moments. And Jesus is saying, keep watching and pray. If the disciples were drunk and just like off their rocker, like you think they're going to be present and know exactly what's going on, be able to keep watch and devote their time to, no. Throw off those things that hinder you. Focus your time and attention on the things that matter. Jesus is telling them to keep watch. Know what's coming. Like, they're about to come over and get me. He's not even telling them this, but Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross and that there's all this commotion that's about to ensue and he's saying keep watch and pray that you won't enter into temptation because what's about to happen could send you over the top, dudes, if you don't actually get on your faces and start praying. And it's the same thing that Peter's saying. Like, what you're gonna go through in this life when you face persecution, when you face these tribulations because of you taking a stand for Jesus, like, if you aren't securing your faith and grounded and seeking the Lord, like in ongoing communication with him, praying, if you aren't sober in your judgment, 
or sober in spirit and sound in your judgment, you're going to be led astray because you're going to fall prey to all the temptations that the enemy throws at you in the midst of the difficult situations you face. There's something about being alert in our prayers and knowing what we're praying for, what we're praying towards, what we're praying against. But if you have no idea what's going on around you, if you have no idea what's going on in you, then it's really hard to know what it is you're to be praying for. I do this with my kids all the time. I go to tuck them in bed at night, and I'll lay there, and I'll say, is there anything we can be praying for? And uh, more often than not, I get this. They'll say, like, I don't know. Nothing we can be praying for. I have a test tomorrow. Can you pray for me? Okay. I, you know, the, the, they'll, they'll think of a couple random things. I'll say, do you know anybody in your life that needs Jesus to, like, step in right now? Like, do you have teachers, family, friends, anybody that really needs Jesus right now? Yeah? Okay, who is it? Okay, can, can we pray for them? Like, as a dad... Like, I'm helping my kids become alert. I'm helping my kids see the opportunities for prayer outside of themselves. And when you're mixed up in, in all the junk in the world, it's really difficult to get a clear picture of what it is we're praying for. I think Peter understood the significance in getting our focus off of us, walking away from the things that hindered them in order to get more focused in prayer and communication with Jesus. So there's four things that I want to leave us with um, in regards to verses 7 through 11. Um, So verse 7, it says, again, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The first is this, is that we have this call to live seriously, to take this life serious, to live it intentionally. And then verse 8, he goes on to say, Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so the second thing is that we love intensely. We live seriously, but we love intensely. This is of primary importance for those of us who follow Jesus. To be fervent literally means to be stretched out to a point of uncomfortability in your life. To love until it hurts. Like, that's real love, when you're willing to actually lay aside all of your agenda, your things that you want, in order to make somebody else the priority, to love when it hurts, to make sacrifices in your life for somebody else. Our love for others has to actually go beyond our comfort. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Verse 9, he says, be hospitable to one another, Without complaint. (laughs) Like that little tag on there. Not just be hospitable to one another, but stop throwing pity parties about it. Stop complaining about it. The third thing, we need to extend hospitality. This word hospitable in the Greek means to be stranger friendly. To be kind and inviting to those that we don't even know. To those that we think we can't even love. To allow ourselves to be stretched to a point where we would be hospitable and extend a hand to those we don't even know. And you do this without complaint. It's it's interesting. Mind you, Peter's still talking about doing these things in the midst of suffering. But I was thinking this week about what my natural inclination is when I'm 
going through hardship and I have to deal with people that are really difficult for me. Anybody else have those issues? <laughs> Just me. Um, but a lot of times I can end up throwing pity parties. Like in the midst of my suffering, I revert back to complaining. I'm not being hospitable. I'm not loving fervently. It's actually easy for my life to be about me. That when I'm experiencing hardship in my life, I complain and try to figure out what I deserve versus how I can extend myself towards others. But I want what's best for me, not what I can do. And that person, man, that, they're a jerk. That person has done so many stupid things. Like, I can't love that person. And Jesus is like, love fervently. Be hospitable. Which leads to Peter's last point here in verse 10. We, here's the basic outline. Like We should be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. We should be willing to walk away from our past life and not go back when things get tough. We should be motivated for righteous living because the end is near. This life is short. That righteous living is not about making right decisions in your life, but about having the mind of Jesus for those around us. And then he, so then he, he comes to, so we live and pray well, we love well, we open our lives and our homes to others, we spend and steward the gifts that God has given us to show the world the grace that we've been given. I, I used to read verse 10 a lot differently than I do now. When, when I gave my life to Christ at 17, it was one of the first books that I read. Don't, don't ask me why. But I like jumped into First Peter, and First um, Peter four ten was like the verse for me, and I remember it in the NIV because I I, I reiterate it to myself all the time. But it's in the NIV. It says each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. In the NASB, the version I'm reading today, it says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. For at 17 year old, uh, the 17 year old Chris, as I read this, as um, naive and uh, dumb as it sounds, I kept thinking to myself snowboarding. <laughs> I was like, snowboarding, that's the gift I have. Thank you, Jesus. You know, and how do you want me to use this gift to serve your world? And by God's grace, like there was things in my life that he set into place where um, what I thought was once given for my gain, God showed me that he actually bestowed things within me for others' gain, that it had nothing to do with me. And so, you know, fast forward a year or two after giving my life to Christ, um, what I realized was that God said, I actually didn't call you to be the snowboarder, I actually called you to pastor so it was like a, a, a spin on the gift, right? Like the thing that you thought you were going to use for yourself, I actually want you to use to serve others. And now fast forward a lot of years, um, and the way I begin to understand this passage is uh, a lot differently, that it's more than likely pertaining to spiritual gifts that we've been given. So you guys go read Romans 12 gifts, go read 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and read through these gifts that God bestows upon his church. 
Um, But for the sake of time and the point of this passage, here's my encouragement to you guys. That everything you've been given is a gift that you did not deserve. Everything. That's God's grace, right? A gift that you were given that you did not deserve. And these gifts are indicative of the grace of God in your life. They point back to Jesus. Like if if I were to wrap up Jesus's primary challenge to us in his life, it would be stewardship, I think. Stewardship of every aspect of your life. And if you steward something, as Peter says here, he says as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That that word manifold means colorful. As a good steward of the colorful, the vastness, grace of God. So if you steward something, it means you're taking care of something that isn't yours. That something's been given to you that you've been asked to use, to watch over, um, to protect, to spend, like whatever it is, it's not yours, but you've been given possession of it for a time and you have to figure out how to utilize that thing well. It means that something that belongs to somebody else has been given to you to look after. So even though it's more likely that Peter is referring to stewarding these spiritual gifts that God has given you, the bottom line is that there, there's more than spiritual gifts that you've been asked to steward in your life. There's a vastness of lifetime resources, friendships, family. God's asked you to spend this life well. And so how you steward or how you take care of and spend these things actually preaches a message to the world that you don't even understand. You want to show God's grace to the world around us? Then spend your life well because it's not your life. He's given it to you to steward on his behalf to show the world the vastness of his grace. It's the best message you can preach. So when a gift is given to you by the grace of God, you have the opportunity to employ it as the one that it's been given to, to use it the hope is that the world doesn't see you in the gift, right? <laughs> Isn't that the hope? Like, I don't want to see Chris in it. But how many things that you have right now in your life, if you really were to be honest with me this morning, are you hoping that you get recognition for the gift you've been given? I hope I make a name for myself. Like, if God, if you really want me to use what you've put in me, I hope that I get a platform. I hope that I get some stage time. I hope that others get to see this gift that you've, and at the end of the day, this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about utilizing, employing a gift in such a way that the world doesn't even see you in it. They look past you and they see straight to Jesus. They see his grace. How can that jacked up guy, Chris, have a gift like that? God's grace. Peter goes on to say in verse 11, whoever speaks, and this isn't like a pastor or a preacher, but whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. That sounds like a pretty weighty call. 
Talk about intentionality. When you open up your mouth, are you prayerfully considering the utterances that you're proclaiming? Because those who speak do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength that who supplied? God himself supplied. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom all to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're not speaking your own words. You're not writing your own narrative in this world. You speak his words. You serve others, not in your own strength, not of your own volition, but out of Jesus's strength. Uh, I'm going to embarrass my wife for a second because I sort of told her I was going to do this, but she hates being recognized. And so but this last week, there was this really awesome moment. I was studying um, for today, and um, there was this, this woman, a friend of ours, who posted something on Instagram and tagged my wife in it, and it was this really sweet message about my wife. Just an awesome message. You are the best woman that ever lived and walked this planet. No, I'm kidding. That's not what it said. Um, But for those of you that don't know, my, my wife's mom is dying right now. And she's going through a really difficult season. And this woman posts this message on Instagram. And um, she basically says um, that her Tuesdays when my wife serves her coffee through the drive through window at Union are like the favorite, her favorite time of the week when she gets to talk about life and raising kids and Jesus. And, through a drive-through window with, with Heather. And I know you hate that I'm recognizing <laughs> But in the midst of all that my wife is experiencing in her life right now that's difficult, there's this brief bright spot where I think I was reminded and I think she was reminded that her life is preaching every single day through the very many menial tasks in life. She's serving coffee through a coffee window because we own a coffee shop and she likes to be there one day a week. But her conversations, she finds intentionality and purpose in. It's not just serving coffee, it's coffee and a conversation about Jesus. And the, the common misconception in life is that you aren't really living for Jesus and using what he's put in you unless you're on a stage, unless you are in a spotlight, unless you're doing something huge for Jesus. And what I love about my, my wife is that her life preaches the sermon. In fact, she had no impact of her words and what they had on somebody else's life, nor was she sharing with people to try to get a sermon published and get recognition on Instagram to try to get somebody to share what she said with somebody else. She was just responding as God put words in her mouth to speak. And as we talk about like using the gifts that God has given us and employing them for the work of Jesus so that the world would see the manifold grace of God, this is it. That as you guys leave this building this morning, you get to choose. Will every task in your life be devoted to Jesus, even down to some of the menial things that you think have no significance and no weight? But even in the menial things, Jesus shows up and he goes, here's my utterances. Here's the ability to serve with my hands and my feet to allow my light to shine because this isn't really about you at all. 
And when we start saying things like, God, give me a bigger platform. God, I want to do this. God, I want the spotlight. I want to reach more people. God, I want more followers on this or that. Everything starts to become about you. Nothing is about Jesus. Why would he give you any platform if all you're going to do is talk about yourself? The only platform he's interested in is the good news of Jesus Christ being professed to the world. That's the only platform he cares about. And for each of us in this room, we have this awesome opportunity to allow our words to literally be the utterances of God as we speak life into others in our community, to serve others as though we're serving with his hands and his feet. And um, I, again, this, this verse 10 for me has been this like, this monumental verse in my life that I've always just found so intriguing that the God of the universe would somehow see me fit to bestow any of his gifts at all. And to think that there's a couple hundred of you in this room with various gifts that he's bestowed upon you to be a blessing in this world, there's no reason that the 120,000 people in our county that don't know Jesus shouldn't know Jesus when there's 150,000 gifts present in this room, you know, like, you guys got it. Um, I want to pray, and then we're going to sing another worship song. But I pray that this morning, like, you'd realize the significance of your life, not in what you do or in your title or your career or the kingdom that you've built for yourself on this earth, but the significance that lies within you because it's the gospel of Jesus, the light that he's placed within you, that you are the salt of the earth, that your purpose is you get the blessing of relating to Jesus and his suffering. You get the blessing of speaking his words and utilizing the hands and the feet that he's gave you to bestow his grace for the rest of the world to see. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you um, for the fact that you've seen us fit to have any gifts at all. God, you could accomplish all of this work yourself. You don't need us. And it seems like such a gracious thing, God, that you've invited us into your story, that you've invited us into your plan. And I just pray for each person in this room, God, as they struggle to figure out what's my purpose, what's my call, that they would just simply rest in the fact that no matter what it is they're doing for a living, the words they speak and the way they serve and love those around them carry more significance than anything or career they could ever have or do. Jesus, I pray you bless your church. I pray you'd ignite a fire within us. I ask that your Holy Spirit would go with us and move radically through us. God, I ask that those that don't know you in our county would come to know you. I pray for those in this room that do not know you, have never had a relationship with you, that maybe this morning, God, you'd be stirring in their heart and bringing them to a place where they'd be willing to jump in, to surrender their life to you and say, Jesus, have your way. Have your way with me. Let me step up aside and you come in Jesus I pray God that you would employ your gifts through this church um, to this community and that our community would be, would be better off because of the gifts of God moving through these 200 people than it is without them Lord we love you in your name Amen